0: Welcome to Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it, so you can leap into your own story. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that inspire you to get your story told. Be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com, and while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. Now, sit back. Get ready to take some notes, and let's get started. This episode of Leap Into Your Story podcast is brought to you by Leap Into Your Story course. Visit leapintoyourstory.com where you have a guide to get your story told. I'm Victoria Anderson, and welcome to the Leap Into Your Story podcast where you discover your inner story, work through the process, and meet others who've done it. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that will inspire you to leap into your own story. Be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com, and while you're there, subscribe and like us be your favorite social media network. In this podcast episode, we're going to be discussing rescuing lost stories and family history. My guest today is Natalie Zett, writer, actor, photographer, and musician. She is also a graduate of Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she received an MA in systematic theology and also holds a business administration degree from Ursuline College. As a freelance uh, journalist, She's written for magazines and papers since her late teens, including the award-winning community newspaper in St. Paul, the Park Bugle. Natalie is passionate about writing and has helped others write for community newspapers at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. However, in her last few years, she's added family historian to her experience and brings us to today's topic. So welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on here. Now, before we dive into some of our interview questions, why don't you take us on your journey journey and tell us how did this all get started?
1: Well, it probably got started before I was born, in Victoria, but um, I think that it it Ostensibly got started when I relocated to the Twin Cities, and I'm talking about Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, on a lark. I came here to go to graduate school, but I had never been here before. And I really, yeah, I was considerably younger, so I wanted to start over. I was already had done theater and I was living in the UK for a while and doing some really kind of cool stuff, but I wanted to just start over with no family, no relations, no nothing. I wanted to just have a clean slate. And I made the decision of all places I could have gone to this place because it felt like home, ironically. I wanted to get away from home, but I wanted it to feel welcoming. And it certainly did. So that's how it started. I think a lot of it. And um, we were talking before we went on the air, I was talking about how some of us seem to have a locating device within us, and we don't really know what that is. But I landed, it turned out that I landed into an ancestral homeland without knowing it. So I think that's the biggest thing. I usually have started my story talking about uh, the how I learned about the Eastland disaster of 1915, but it really started when I moved up here, so I was being primed. And then um, in 1996, my father died. And I think because of that death, I was quite open to things that I normally would not be open to, like trying to make connections, trying to um, make sense of life now. It was like meaning everything I had changed, everything had changed. And about a year after that, my mother's half sister, who was a reporter in Chicago in the 1930s, and who I thought was dead, you know, we weren't that close on that side of the family, sent me a 38-page family history from that side of the family. I grew up knowing nothing of my mother's mother's side of the family because my mom's mom died in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is where we were from. And my mother just had no connection with that side of her family because the rest of them were in Chicago. It's a basic immigrant story. They go from town to town to find work. And so there was that big separation. And because my mother grew up without a mother herself, she would say things like, well, you can't miss what you never had. And I didn't believe it. I, I just didn't believe that that was true. So when this document came, 38 pages of family history that I I was blown away. I mean, I was already upset because of my dad's death. And I thought just these pages, these words, all of a sudden made me look at my life and just say, I'm not who I think I am, am I? And the first shock was finding a little paragraph about my grandmother's younger teenage sister who was among the 844 people who were killed in downtown Chicago on July 24th, 1915, when a huge steamer that was chartered for Western Electric's annual picnic capsized while moored in the Chicago River, throwing all these people into the river. And the ones who, you know, uh, many, of course, many died, but there were quite a few people who were traumatized after that. And so that was the history. And because I was such a Chicago history aficionado, I mean, I love Carl Sandburg. I love reading about the gangsters. I love this. I don't know why I love the Saint Valentine's Day massacre, but I just thought Chicago, no, that's an exciting city, not like where I was living in Cleveland. And I always loved Chicago. And I thought, why don't I know of this thing, this Eastland disaster? And at first I thought my mother's sister had gotten it wrong and she's no. So in 1997, if you remember, if anybody's been around that long, the internet was a thing, but it did not have a lot of information at that point. And so I was already an established writer. So I thought, I'm going to go write about this thing, but I couldn't find hardly anything. So I had to go back and forth, with my mother's sister, I actually started traveling um, back and forth to Chicago, meaning sometimes on the weekends, I would drive seven hours from the Twin Cities to Chicago, go back and forth. And it soon became an obsession. And she started sharing photos of this woman with me, and she was so pretty. And I had to wonder what could have happened if she had lived. The other part of that story, the subtext of that story was this woman was not, my aunt was not a Western Electric employee, my grandmother was. My grandmother was pregnant with with the woman who actually wrote the the family history, my mother's half-sister, and she gave the tickets to her younger sister. So my grandmother should have been on that thing. And when I realized what could have happened, were it not for an exchange of tickets, and my grandmother gave her sister a one-way ticket, and that was it. And so I thought, oh my gosh, it could have been Grandma, and she could have died, and we would have never been my sister, not my mom, my sister, I, my sister's children, would have never been. And on again, it was. I didn't mean to be glib, but I thought her name was Martha Pfeiffer, who died. I said, Martha, I owe you one. And I really, that was the first time I think in my adult life, I connected with an, with an ancestor, not a direct ancestor, but an ancestor in that fashion. I thought, oh no, because these aren't just names and dates and pages. They're not just photographs. This was a living, breathing human being, a soul who didn't even reach her 20th birthday. And there were so many like that on that ship. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to make sure people know about this freaking disaster. And so I was all riled up. I thought, oh, and it was, it was a study in futility for a while trying to get this information. But back to this document, this 38-page document, as I was reading, more shocks came my way. I saw that my on the same side of the family, my great-great-grandmother and her children had also immigrated up here, just across the border from where I'm living now, in a small village in Western Wisconsin, not even an hour and a half from where I am. And I had hundreds of thousands of relatives above ground and below ground that are already here. And I thought, again, why did I come here? So that, I I grew up with the kind of nurture, not nature. You, You make your own path. I am the captain of my soul, all this sort of thing. And I had to start questioning that because I thought, Who's pulling my strings here? And the other thing I realized is I was following, nearly following in the footsteps of this great aunt who was killed. She was born in Johnstown. I was born in Johnstown. Her family moved west. So did mine. You know, they ended up in Chicago. Mine were in Cleveland. And again, of course, I kept going. And she spent a lot of her summers in western Wisconsin where I spent a lot of time. Because, again, I would visit there a lot before I knew this connection because it felt like home. And so between my father's death and all this information, I was a bit of a train wreck. I was really quite, um, I was thrown off center. And I think that's the best place to be, to be open to the things that were about to unfold in terms of the supernatural, paranormal, whatever you want to call them. So hopefully I've answered that question.
0: Uh, You have. So um, I think we kind of started to go into some of the benefits of the exploring the family history is you realize there's more to you than you realize too um and also the um the ability to speak for the dead
1: mm-hmm. i like and, that
0: you know share their their life Oh, even in this case, you know, somebody is very young at 19, but, you know, you've, you've now brought that person in essence to almost back to life, not, mm-hmm. not necessarily physically, but raised people's awareness of not only the tragic event that nobody has ever heard about that. I've never heard about that. Um, as we were talking, I said, you know, I have family on the East coast and, and in between, and this first time I've heard of that, but, um, you know, the, the ability to take that and bring it out, even if it's over a hundred years old. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of just, for me, it's like, you're bringing that person back to life. You're, you're giving them maybe a bigger purpose than had they even lived um, because of something like that.
1: I, I totally agree with you. And I like the way that you put that because I found that I wasn't consciously doing this, but as I gave my time and my life force over to this story, it was as if she did come back. (laughs) Maybe she was always there. I really don't know. I mean, she's in my DNA. That's the other thing too. As you know, years later, you learned. I learned about genetic genealogy, and I've done quite a bit of work along those lines besides the family history and records. It's like she's in me, literally. Um, Part of the recipe is is there, but she's also outside of me. But the fact that I followed like the little bird that never knew where their nest was and I came home. The other thing with my life up until that point, I never, other than where I was born, um, I never felt at home in any place until I moved here. I thought, I'm lost. I really feel like the Romani side of the family. I really feel like, oh, I just live in a caravan, you know, just keep moving. But I thought, no, this is it, this is it. And I began, back. to I was trying to write an article, a little article is all I wanted out of this thing. And I thought, I'll be done with this, this vexation, whatever this thing was. But the more pulled in I got to the story, the more things escalated that I couldn't explain. And because they were... Some of these things were just so bizarre. There was really nobody I could talk to in terms of, I mean, the people who would believe me were a little bit too excited about the topic and were a little, I thought, you need to center yourself here. They were just they they would go and seek these experiences, which I never did. I have a deep respect. <laughs> it's like I'm not gonna go into some abandoned house and start yelling at people. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> <laughs> And because, um, again, I grew up with a family, and my father said, this is my dad's side, very different, well, similar group. Uh, We're all from Central and Eastern Europe. But that side of the family, they were, many of them were practicing fortune tellers, mediums, tarot readers, whatever. And this is Eastern Europe tradition. It's not Wicca, not anything like that. It goes way, way back. I don't know how far back. But they were from an area that's, you know, the Carpathian Mountains, And they are their own brand of things. And they did not teach us anything. We just watched them. That's the other thing. Nobody sat down with us and said, now you need to do whatever. But what I learned by watching them was be afraid, be really afraid. This stuff is real. Um, And I did not want this stuff, again, visiting me at home. And the other thing, too, was respect. Uh, It's like it's not a game. It's not something to mess with. And it's not something to... Make yourself feel better, make yourself make loose yeah. your ego and add to you. And and I was telling somebody, I said, the nice thing about doing this research for this book is there was an internet, there was a form of social media, but there were no likes to be had for what I was doing. There was no acknowledgement for I had to really do the solitary path, bolster myself up because it was me and the dead, and then my my mother's sister for the most part, who was in her 80s at that point. But I thought I really had to keep pushing and with no outer motivation. And I think that was the sweetest part of this journey to realize once I let go of the controls, I really was in a sense being led. Um, I was going to to share the story of the first time I went to the cemetery. I mean, I'm not a cemetery person at that point. I mean, we did some cemetery stuff when I was a kid, but my aunt, my great aunt is buried in a large cemetery in outside of Chicago. It's called Bethania Cemetery next to Resurrection Cemetery. And a lot of people know about Resurrection Mary in Chicago. She's Chicago's famous hitchhiking ghost. I bet a lot of the listeners know this person. Anyway, those two cemeteries share space. And I decided to drive down there in order to complete my article because my article was really bad. The ending was awful and I didn't like it. And I'm very obsessive about my writing. And so for this little article, I drove all the way down to Chicago to the cemetery and I thought, wait a minute. Is it going to be open? And then once I got there, it's freaking huge. And because it was a Labor Day weekend, the offices weren't opened. And I, I, I just didn't know what to do I thought, How am I gonna find these graves? Oh my God. And hundreds of thousands of graves. And so I parked my car, started walking around. I thought, where are the old graves? Maybe they're in the front, I don't know. And I just kept running and running. And then I was getting insane because it was really hot and I hadn't had enough to drink. And I, I thought, oh, I'm such a fool. I was walking back to my car to get something, and then suddenly I tripped. I didn't fall down, but I was like pointed in a direction. In front of my car, I had parked right in front of my family's graves. They were right there, and I did not see them. And I don't know what that was. I really, people have given me these explanations. I don't know what it was, but there were three little trees that were intertwined with each other, almost braided in front of this thing that is long gone. I don't have a photo of that. I have an old Polaroid that faded, but I parked right in front of the grave. So, there is the grave that where my aunt was buried, and it says in German on the Eastland, "Rest in peace, Martha Pfeiffer." So somebody in the past wanted somebody in the future to know not just the, that this person died, but how she died. And then behind her are the graves of my great grandparents, which again I didn't even know that they had immigrated. I knew nothing about them. And then my my um, mother, my grandmother, and my aunt had a baby sister who died at age. Three of something called Black Diphtheria in Chicago. I don't think my family was poor, poor, but they were definitely not wealthy. And I, I think probably like many uh, people of the lower classes, disease and things like this kind of made their way through communities and people were getting killed right and left, more so on, in Johnstown where I was from, but Chicago as well. So that experience of parked being parked in front of the, the cemetery, I mean, in front of the grave, I thought, yikes, I thought, and then I learned years later that this is a very common thing and it's not at all amazing, but I was amazed because again, I did, I wasn't influenced by any other writings or beings or any other, there was no social media. So I was really tripping out there on my own and it was a great, it was a very sweet experience. So I thought, whoa. And then there were things that happened in the hotel room the night before, like movements and things like that. And I thought, I'm not imagining this. There's somebody in here with me. And I thought, oh, gosh. And I thought, what do I do? Nothing other than say, okay, you better behave yourself. I don't want to see you. I don't want you to go walking by. Um, you, if you want me to do something, I'll do it. But I was not seeking any kind of, you know, over-the-top special effects, okay, because I was already really in rough emotional shape. But I could feel a presence. And it was it was frightening, but I wasn't afraid for my life. I was definitely, it was an acknowledgment. I thought, I know you and you know me. So that's how this thing began escalating. And again, I'm still talking about, you know, late nine, 1998, around that time. And I didn't know how to put together a family history. Um, when I was growing up, because of, of who we were, the, our, our family working class and all, all of the kids in the neighborhood that I lived, we were not the well-off people. And we tended to school And I don't know what this teacher was thinking of. I really don't know, but she wanted us all to do a family tree. Again, most of us were either immigrants, children, grandchildren, whatever, or African American. She wanted us to do a family tree. And to pass this little test, we had to all trace our families back to the Mayflower. None of us in that classroom, I don't think, we could have figured out that if we were Mayflower people. And that was, and that again, that was. It wasn't the Mayflower, not just in the Mayflower people, but it was just like you're of this class and you can't do this. And I remember asking my mom about our family history. I said, well, you know, I asked her about the Mayflower. She looked at me like I was not. She said, we're not Mayflower people. And I said, well, don't we have records? No, they were all burned in Eastern Europe during the war. She never said what war. So she, I think she was just tired of me by that point. And I said, but we have to have a history. And so I went back to the teacher and just said, well, I said, "Um, we don't have any, we don't have that history. And I said, but I am an American. And she said, you're not a real American because of that. And that was used, you know, eons ago as one of those things to keep people um, not just in their place, but to internalize. You don't have a history. You don't have a family history. And that's the other. (laughs) Yes, I do. And I've been able to just, you know, do some incredible tracing. And that's what I do now. You know, part of my living is made doing this kind of work. But that early experience, it did hurt. But did it hold me back? No, I thought, I'll show you. And I think sometimes those experiences are meant to motivate us and move us forward on the checkered board. But again, I didn't have a ton of encouragement through any of this. It was just one of those things where I was on my own and I did what I needed to do. And I made a lot of errors. Um, cause I just didn't know, but things are better now in terms of, of having, uh, people to work with. God knows the internet is just like a wealth of information, but, um, and I'm really grateful for that. But so I stumbled my way through and did that article and that's where I, I thought I would end it. I didn't want to write a book, but a book happened anyway.
0: Oh, that's interesting. There's a couple of things I want to ask you and you kind of hinted a little bit. I'm going to see if my cat I might we might be uh photo bombed or video bombed the cat I'm trying to keep her in place it's not doing it's not working so good so we'll see (laughs)
1: okay don't worry about it we have photo bombers after so yeah
0: at least she's not jumping on my chair you know swatting me from the back on occasion so (laughs) but um one of the things that you hinted uh kind of that you know paranormal occurrences mm-hmm. are kind of goes along with the territory when you're you know working with genealogy and tracing family history is that mm-hmm. something that uh, you're kind of hinting but have, have you talked to other people in that business and yeah. is that yeah. something normal mm-hmm.
1: i think the paranormal is very normal in genealogy but here's the kicker um, I was going to tell you, there was a guy who wrote a couple books on par- the paranormal and genealogy, a well-respected genealogist. He is an, a former child actor, and I think he's still around. He We wrote last year, early part of um, 2022, his name is Hank. I think it's Hank Z. Jones. I think he was a Disney kid at one point. But anyway, he's become a noted genealogist, but he has two books that I think he self-published about all these people, I guess, thousands of them that wrote to him about the same kind of experiences. So it's not unusual, but I think the kicker is this. Um, And again, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but many of the people in this area are quite traditionally um, religious. And some of their religions do not permit the paranormal to visit them during genealogical explorations. So, therefore, if that does happen, would they share that? Would they be open about that? I don't think so. And again, I'm not, I'm I'm under I come from a very mixed religious background myself, just my own, but also um. My family is just everything. We've got Ashkenazi, Jewish, Byzantine, Orthodox, Lutheran, Catholic. And I've just met some Muslim um, relatives in, in Turkey. So we got them all. So, But some of those do not allow for this type of experience because, face it, you can't control it then, right? And so I think that it happens probably even more frequently. But for myself, um, with, the, with that background that I have it as well, when it started happening, it did scare me. And I I even called my mother. I said, Mom, I think she's in my apartment. And she said, Well, she's not gonna hurt you. I said, You got a point. So it was just one of those kinds of things where just relax, you know. But I think for some people, anything that doesn't doesn't fit that their, you know, what they've been taught can be really frightening. And again, deep respect and love for those people too when that stuff happens, I, I knew that I needed to start writing it down because someday I thought I'm going to talk myself out of it. And I thought, no, not this freaking time. I'm going to honor this. I have to. And I don't know why I was so um, adamant and almost dogmatic about this, but I thought I've got to write this down. And I also felt the connection between life and death. The veil was broken. And I thought, oh my God, on some other level, this woman is still going on And on some other level, we are deeply connected. And if I don't pay attention to her, I'm going to miss so much. And she's brought me to this place, I would have to say, Victoria, the place where I'm able to help people. I'm able to connect people to their families. I'm able to assure them just because they're dead doesn't necessarily mean they're done. You know, they they can go on. And when I finally did get the book together and I was actually, uh, it took me, it took me years really. And I had a few years off and I had a car accident and I was working on getting my memories back, but that happens. Um, When I was putting it together, my mom was in the midst of dying. And so what I did is I rushed the edits out because I thought my mom has to hold her history before she dies. And so I rushed the edits. I got it to her the early part of 2022 and she died a couple of weeks later but my, my sister only recently left me a voice message from my mom where she said, got that but damn book, finally, and I'm holding it and finally finished it. <laughs> you know, all this funny stuff. that she, My mom was really funny. My mom, we have this gallows sense of humor. And she knew the story. She knew what I was uncovering. But I thought that part of your life, mom, was important. And I give it back to you. So it is an honor to be able to participate in my mother's healing And I think as I got older and as I study family history and as we study family history, there's some awful things. I mean, I got some people that are on the wrong side of history. I'll tell you that in my family. And it's like, oh, God, but they're there. However, you can also be the conduit for healing, too, when you encourage people to tell these stories, to not be ashamed. It's like, you didn't do it. You know, you didn't do this stuff. But you got these schmuck relatives who did. And it's like, either you tell the story or somebody else may tell the story. So that's a decision you will make. And so I think that it can be tremendously healing, but there's nothing like giving my mother's history back to her before she died. And I said, mom, they're waiting for you. Okay. They'll be there. Grandma will be there. Martha will be there. Dad will be there. All these people. And I was sure of it. It wasn't just to make her feel better. I said, no, I think they're there. They're because I thought Aunt Martha has really disrupted my whole existence. So I I think she's a, a blithe spirit who will be give you a very fun afterlife. So that in and of itself, if nothing else, that's the greatest gift. Not necessarily the ghostly visitations, all this other stuff. But the fact that I, could, I was the ripped piece of that family that in a sense people really <laughs> didn't want to acknowledge me either. But I was part of that whole and I was able to put that mess back together. That quarter part of the family genealogy pie. I'm the one, the one who didn't have the family history, the one who just, you know, I shouldn't have done any of this, but damn it, I did. So I think the story, a lot of people can relate to that kind of story. You know, the outlier is the one who comes in, boom, and here you are. So enjoy your outlier self, enjoy all that sort of thing and embrace it, hold it, it's yours. And you can find a lot of people that are like you. Some you just wish, whoa, don't want to be that person. But it's just, it's a rich, rich adventure. Frustrating, but rich.
0: I wholeheartedly agree. You know, as somebody who's written multi, I write the volume set of memoirs. Uh, (laughs) But as you, we were talking about my first book, The Touched, does include a lot of the family history from the immigration over from Italy and Mm -hmm. both sides of the family. And I was surprised, delightfully surprised that family members who were excited that I had published a book, bought the book and then were also delightfully surprised on how much history I was able to retain that they never knew too. some of it. They were familiar, but uh, it was really just like you said, you're you're just connecting all these loose threads into a a really wonderful kind of quilt of different Mm -hmm. stories, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, through you. And and, you know, it's a big uh, family blanket. And I mean, mm-hmm. there's people in there, They're good, bad, and indifferent. Um, but they're family, mm-hmm. and I think it's important that you know what they contributed. Because even even like the terrible family members, they mm-hmm. had some good qualities that thankfully kind of came through the threads of you know our genetic fabric. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you talk about how. You know, you didn't know about your grandmother, but apparently there was something in you that you did know. Mm-hmm. It oh, carried yeah. through you. Um, you know, talking about the carryovers. I remember when I moved to New Mexico and I was going through an uh the cedar chest, the family cedar chest. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen it, I'd never seen my mother talk about it, but in this little tiny box, you could see this old probably cardboard box and on the front it had Elizabeth, which was my grandmother's name. Mm -hmm. I opened the box and it was filled with her little pieces of broken jewelry. It saved all the jewelry. Well, my husband, is a jeweler so he was able to repair all those pieces of jewelry (laughs) so now i have them (laughs) yeah so she would save all her it was like maybe four four pieces and you could tell they were well loved and well worn and i looked at that i'm like every single one's broken and my husband's like i can fix that (laughs) yeah
1: I love that. I love that. So you said I'm sorry, I have a shirt.
0: Oh no, no, no. So I says it does carry through. Um, you know, maybe I mean, what's the likelihood I, I find some and he didn't start out as a jeweler. I mean, when we started to date, he got into mm-hmm. it because of his uh roommate who needed a solder guy. And so yeah, I think there's a lot of um groundwork that maybe mm-hmm. Coming through from the past Mm -hmm. that we are not aware of but then it shows up and it's like we give things
1: new life I love that that's um, when you're talking that way about just what in this you know what's inside of us in my book I have a quote the blood remembers what the heart never knew Mm. and the blood, my dad used to always had a saying, it's in the blood, it's in the blood, it's in the blood. And I thought, what are you talking about? But you know, um, it is, there's something in the blood. And sometimes that blood is, that part of the blood is activated. Not everyone has that activation or is drawn to it. But when it happens, it's like, you you have to go. Uh, it's just whatever, wherever it leads you, whether it's to broken jewelry, Chicago, right. ever, because it's also part of your quest. And as you engage with your own past, you rearrange your present and I think the future. And as you have your books, I have my book, my stories. It's like, we don't know 100 years from now who's going to grab our stuff and kind of go, who's going to need that. I would have loved to have had information from this great aunt who was killed. I mean, I have a couple writings of hers, but that's about it. I have actually my grandmother's, her sister's autograph book. They used to do autographs back then from each other. So these little wretched sayings that they would, you know, I guess it was gallows humor back then, but it's just like, that's all I have. And us will have, you know, millions of cat videos, some of us and things yeah. like that. But it's like, we have the challenge of how do you curate all that stuff for the message that you want to give your future Momentum mori You remember, Hey, I'm a future dead person. Do I really want you to look at reams and reams of cats? Or do I really want you to you know, learn what I've learned, hear about aspects of my life, that sort of thing. So I think that's that's the challenge for our being alive in this wonderful day and age of all this technology and that sort of thing. So it's a different challenge, but the challenge is still the same. How to curate, which message do you want? And um, are you willing to have your life capsized like this ship was to 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 let it live, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't wait until something tragic. You should thinking about what, and I'm a big advocate of this, and, you know, I talk about it in my talks, um, when I'm doing speaking engagements, I talk about it in my courses, the importance of legacy, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, like he says, and, and I love how you, how you phrased it, think of yourself as the future dead person, and what do you want to be remembered for, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, <laughs> I, that's important, um, You know, and I think there's a lot of 30-second, you know, dance routines going on. Think about maybe something a little more enriching. I mean, you're entertaining for a few seconds, but you should think beyond the few seconds and think about, as you call it, the memento mori and the Mm -hmm. future dead person. And what do you want to leave as your legacy once Mm -hmm. you're gone, not only to family, but, you know, to the world.
1: Exactly. And I know you're doing that and I'm trying to do that. And I think too, the whole thing of, in a sense, having that servant mentality too. So it's not just look at me. I mean, it's like, yeah, don't look at me, look at what I do. I'm really not that interesting, but, but look at what um, in terms of, if you look at, I was thinking of Cindy Lauper's son, we're not the fortunate ones. girls we want to have fun it's like we're not the fortunate ones but look what we've been able to do you know with and also too the other thing too i'm a real advocate for people you know italy southern italy was another group that was well represented in that labor those laborers that were in these uh like western electric and in johnstown in the mines with my folks so it's just like there's a shared um history there and in in a sense too we were all told you know you're not quite you know, with the rest of these folks. So it's just like, wait a minute here. And it's just like, I'm going to stand up for my people. I'm going to stand up for the ancestors, for my grandfather's sister who signed her name with an X. I'm going to stand up for her because I can write in several languages and read several languages because of what they were willing to go through. And I think there is a good kind of humility that happens out of that when you realize what what your folks, your grandparents, your great-grandparents went through to bring you to New Mexico at this yes. point and what you're carrying and what I'm carrying here in the frozen tundra of Minneapolis, yeah. St. Saint- and as much as I gripe about this, that and the other, I thought I can sign my name, you know, little things like that. So um, I think it's good for all of us to remember. And I think when we have that attitude of what can we, how can we inspire the best, best thing i tell people, it's like, I take care of the book. The book is not going to take care of me. I have a job. I do whatever. The book was simply for my family. I'm amazed that people are interested in it. But the best gift is if you look at something like my book and you're inspired to do your own family work, that's great. Several people have told me, friends of mine, that they gave their book to this book, my book to somebody who was dying. And I thought, oh. And they found it comforting. And I didn't write it for that. But again, there's also, as you probably well know. There are the unintended consequences of something that we put out in the world. People will see things that we never did, but it has to get out into the world first. I, I didn't write to, to, to mass market anything. I wrote because my family needed to hear this. If anybody else cares, fine, but that's not why I did it. But sometimes when you're specific and basically play to a small audience, it blows up, which I think is what it's, it's contradictory to what you're told. You got to do big. It's like, no. I don't, and I won't, I will follow whatever spirit that that leads me down the path that leads me. And that's where I have the best coincidences, the best connections, all that sort of thing. So I say just, yeah, follow what makes sense. But I hope people are inspired to do their own work and come up with your treasures. There's some wacky stuff that you can find.
0: Definitely. And I'll tell you, uh, as a writing coach, one of the biggest fears that people have about memoir writing is that you know they don't want to put all you know all the stuff out there because they're afraid of family backlash. Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. I always just say, you know, don't focus on that person. It's your story. Yeah. It's your story. Focus on how you felt, think and reacted and what you did to overcome it. It's not their story, you mm-hmm. know. I said, oh, wow. don't let them live in your mind. You know, don't let them live in your book. They're just one little chapter in the whole book. And, you know, that's how you focus on it. But there are people who are fear, fearful of that. Um, but yeah. on the flip side, like you said, one of the, uh, I guess, unexpected uh, you know, benefits is that people who didn't know me read my book and contacted me. And says, oh, man, I can really relate to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that really kind of boosted my confidence. You know, I, I can relate. I wasn't sure if those feelings were justified. And you had that and you went through that and you thought the same thing. So mm-hmm. having people that don't know you personally and contacting you and say you made a difference. yeah.
1: That is so very cool. And I think um, yeah, that's that's another that is definitely a benefit. And I think when when I I've taught memoir classes as well, and I was terrified when I was putting this thing together. So how I got around it is I made it fiction. Wink wink. But it, it's very much based on, but I I I didn't have the freedom if I I would have been boring if I would have made this book memoir because it was boring. And the thing is I wasn't alive in 1915. I've been alive for a while, but I, I don't know what happened. To these people. I can only conjecture based on stories that were told to me. And I also wanted, I, I had a lot more freedom telling the truth with fiction. And people have asked me, is this autobiographical? I said, in a sense it is, but there are other things like with my own family, my my parents and my sibling, I did amp them up a little bit. I had to make them more interesting than what they actually were. So uh, to add to the drama, because I I started off writing as a playwright. So I know how to kind of, you got to build this, you got to do this, whatever. And I had to stay awake and I was writing this thing too, because it took for freaking ever. And it always takes longer
0: than you expect.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I always tell people genealogy is constant course correction. So did I get some things wrong? Yes, but I left them in as wrong because that was the information I had at the time. And that's why I built a website out to tell some of the real story behind it because I also captured my own past of the late 90s this is what the world was like this is what the internet was like this is what this family history if you wanted to be a family historian and you couldn't go to salt lake city what did you do i mean there wasn't a lot of help so people need to understand that that was the time and that, so that was un, that was an unintended consequence too but it's like that was the time and this was and it was a groovy time before 9-11. yes so, second. And so if the world seemed free and fine, you could go any place and everything was going to be great. Uh-oh, you know.
0: Yeah. And see, that's something I captured too, is mm-hmm. what's going on in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in my second book, The Trial by Fire, I talked about, you know, what I was doing on 9-11 and oh. you know, the thoughts and feelings and, you know, people reacting around me and, you know, how traumatic that was and thought, you know, geez, I just launched this business with my husband. It's going to, you know, we put all our savings into it 11 days before 9 And, yeah. you know, uh, it actually turned out to be a surprisingly um, a beneficial because it was the antique business and the antique business was going bust. And 9-11 actually put this resurgence of interest in the past and people clinging to past, you know, past eras of happiness and, you know, footloose and francy kind of thing.
1: Yes. I hadn't heard that. or thought that that's very good. I'm going to think about that, Victoria. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even through tragedy, Mm -hmm. there's benefit and, you know, that's, Mm-hmm. You know, the book covers at least my my first three volumes got covered like, you know, uh, a good 25 years of not only my history, but the history of the world, too. So
1: that's really, yeah. And that, that was
0: through my eyes, of course, you know, <laughs> course.
1: but that's, but that's all we have are these. I read a lot of, because of, you know, the genealogy, I read a lot of these old accounts for a couple hundred years ago and were they actually accurate? I don't know, but it's just, there's a certain style of writing too. That's, it's kind of almost, it's too flowery and too hilarious, but, but it's, but I'm really glad these people took the time to capture this stuff because otherwise sometimes that's our only, Witness. And again, is it we often find out that a lot of our assumptions are incorrect, too. Only recently we found the red clo- Red Cross records of the distributions that were given to the families that were affected by the Eastland. Somebody almost threw them out, Wow. And I think the President of the Eastland Disaster Historical Society somehow got hold of them, and now they're out and available. So there's always things being uncovered. So I always tell people, it's like, yeah, you know, to be, basically to be corrected, everything is to be corrected. But as you were saying, it's like, I was self-conscious too, but I thought the hell with it, you know, it's going to be one of those things where either it gets out, I tell the story or somebody else will, and I date, I am the only person who who lost somebody in the Eastland who's written about that. The other people who have written about the Eastland either wrote it as like like detached observers, they did a historical thing or they were related to somebody who survived but I or, or was a rescuer. But I'm so far I would like other people to do this, but I'm the only person who's talked about how that trauma traveled downstream to the family, you know to, took out my grandmother took out, you know, mess, messed up my mother's life, all this stuff that happened and how it takes, it finally drips to the end of me. And it's like, we're going to fix this. And I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about, but the attitude of we're going to fix this. And um, it's an oldest child syndrome too, I suppose. But
0: <laughs> Well, it but, sounds but it's- like the tragedy being that is personal and you through mm-hmm. the blood connection, has transformed your
1: life say so for the better better. I would say for the yeah yeah and um at the time though I think it's I think you're alluding to this too you had to be kind of willing to walk in the dark and trust that you will end up in a place where things make sense and I would have to say the last year 2022 losing my mother and then I have family in Ukraine and ironically ironically or not before the for the ukraine war happened my um the people who did the cover from my book and they did a beautiful cover are based in kiev i wanted to keep it in the family so i found this very young um company that that does book covers and they do a beautiful job and then this happened so i thought even that side of the family which is my dad's side is represented in this thing wow. and they did a gorgeous job i said i want art nouveau chicago 1912 what can you do they did it. And I thought, yeah, so I just, and they're, and they're lovely. And I thought it really is a family affair. And the other thing about my great aunt who was killed, she wanted to travel all over the world. So every so often I'll look at my Squarespace stats, Mumbai, um, Afghanistan. I mean, she's gone everywhere at this point. So it's like (laughs) all, all through Europe, South Africa, Argentina, Venezuela. And I thought you did it Aunt Martha. We did it. You're all over the world.
0: See? Yeah. See, it's it's come full circle and got yep. your closure and she's living through you.
1: I think she's going to do well on her own too, Victoria Truth. <laughs> I think she's one of those rollable ones. It's like, get over here. Um, yeah. That's okay. That's well, okay. That's, so.
0: that's awesome. So, well, I think we've come to the end of our interview today. I do have one last question. Where can we find out more about you and your writing and anything else we'd like to know? Where can we find out more?
1: Well, my name is Natalie Zedd, and I'm on all the socials, but excuse me, I'm losing my voice. I'm not used to talking this much. Um, Pardon me, but my book is called Flower... In the river, not flowers, but flower in the river. And that's the name of my website. So it's com. And now I have had enough traffic on it where it actually pops up now. It didn't used to do that. So it's out there, but my name and again I'm on you know LinkedIn, Instagram. That's where I have my you know quasi-professional accounts. I've heard from a lot of really interesting people throughout the last year, even though again, I really wasn't into doing much promoting i was into being grieve a griever last year I was a professional griever losing my mom and i really didn't have any i just kind of went through almost like an automaton but this year it's like i'm getting myself back so it's, it's just fun to hear from people and get my footing back and um and right now i'm working on a podcast about the book because of some of the amazing questions that people have asked me and i'm doing the audiobook narration which is oh had I known, talk about another going into the dark, you know, it's one of those kinds of things where uber challenging, but almost getting it done. Um, had to wait for construction season to end because I don't have a soundproof location. So I've learned a lot of, more than I ever wanted to know about audio producing. So that's what's going on. Welcome to the
0: podcast world. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'll let you know That's, that, that's it's, uh, yeah, trial and error. You'll be
1: fine. I'm really all about making mistakes too and not being, I'm just, I just make a mess wherever I go. Then it's like, oh, well, you know, nobody can say I didn't do it. So that's it.
0: You know, it's better to make progress than be perfect. So, yeah. Absolutely. That's my motto. Well, Natalie, I want to thank you for sharing your fantastic story today. And I want to thank all my listeners for tuning into the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, work through the process and meet others who've done it. So you can be guided to your own journey to write your story. Remember to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one, Again, while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. We are looking forward to seeing you next time here on the Leap Into Your Story podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. Remember to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one again while you're there subscribe and like to us via your favorite social media network we're looking forward to seeing you next time on the leap into your story podcast